Hi, Habibis. I just wanted to let you all know that Habibti Please is part of the Harbinger Media Network. This network is very important to me and others as a group of progressive voices creating independent media that challenges predominant narratives told in right-wing and liberal media. I want to recommend some shows I personally enjoy that are part of the Harbinger Media Network, such as Rob Rousseau's 49th Parahal, as well as the Indigenous storytelling series Feel Rouge, which features stories from Indigenous communities in the far north of Quebec. Harbinger is listener supported. You can get subscriber specific content when you head over to harbingermedianetwork.com and subscribe. Hey everyone, this is a pretty long episode, but it's also a pretty important one. The first half of this episode is a conversation between myself and my friend Priya about the Indian farmers' strikes and protests. And although India is currently the epicenter of the COVID pandemic, these strikes are still ongoing and very important to discuss. The second half of this episode is a conversation between Priya, myself, and Vijay Prashad, in which we discuss how COVID in India is manifesting and devastating lives. So I hope people enjoy this entire episode. Take care. Bye. Hi, everyone. Uh, This is part of the bigger episode on the farmers' protests in India, and I'm so honored to have a Twitter mutual of mine. So this show features lots of mutuals of mine. Uh, Priya joined me, and Priya is an organizer, filmmaker, researcher, currently based out of Oakland, California, hails from Chennai, India. And then uh, can you tell my audience a bit about yourself and where they can find you on the internet? Yeah, for sure. So I work as a tenant organizer in Oakland, but I'm originally from Chennai, India. Um, You can find me on Twitter at Priya V. Prabhakar, which is just my name. And on Instagram, it's Priya underscore Prabhakar. So yeah, feel free to hit me up there. Awesome. And um, we wanted to do this episode prefaced with a few like with a few other people just to talk about the farmers protests that began in India, because people on the American Internet and Canadian Internet, some seem to pay attention to it, some do not. And it seems like a big loss for leftists who are not getting informed about what's going on. And then you see celebrities tweeting about it. So it's good to just have like a nitty gritty one on one what's going on. Um, and so Priya is going to walk us through a bit and kind of help us understand like the larger context of the righteousness of the anger that farmers have right now that are protesting. So uh, Priya, can you tell us a bit about when did the strikes start and what are they all about? Yeah, for sure. So the strikes basically started after the enactment of these three laws in June of 2020. But I also want to start by saying that farmer protests are not unique to this time, especially in India. They happen pretty often, um, especially after the uh, liberalization of the Indian market in 1991, when, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, free trade started. And that was when farmers really felt felt the brunt of, you know, global capitalism and the agricultural market. So farmer protests are not new and also farmer suicides are not new. And what's happening now, though, I think is unprecedented in its scale. Um, So basically in June of 2020, these three acts were um, introduced by Modi. And these acts basically represented the mass deregulation of and neoliberalization of the agricultural market. So I'll go into a little bit about the content of the laws a little bit later, but what they do in essence is allow like really big corporate entities and large conglomerates to take control of the agricultural industry and stockpile commodities in unlimited quantities. And they also allow for corporations to engage in uh, contract farming without proper legal recourse for the farmers in the event 
of a dispute. So to give a little context about farmers in India, 50% of workers in India are in the agricultural industry. And prior you know, to these protests and prior to the laws being enacted, um, the agricultural industry was already very exploitative um, and resulted in hundreds of thousands of farmer suicides. But what the Indian government has done now is adopt these, you know, very extremely violent neoliberal laws without any input from farmers and unions for the purposes of liberalizing the industry so that two major conglomerates and, you know, conglomerates in general in India, which are the Adani group and the Ambani group, can profit off of this industry. So these are two conglomerates um, who monopolize several industries in India but they see the agricultural market now as one that they can use to make profits off of in the short term. And we see that in the ways that these are two conglomerates which, in conjunction with the enactment of these laws, they purchased grain silos. You know, and and that's not a coincidence um, because they're trying to take control of the food chain and ultimately, you know, profit off of this market. Uh, well, like then, the, so the traditional spaces uh, for farmers to sell and buy will collapse. And then I'd, I'd want to hear more from you about how these groups uh, are connected to the BJP and what happens when the traditional space collapses and, and, and kind of the breakdown for people who might not be familiar with why it matters, like who, who is in the traditional space, like what is the demographic of the farmers? And then what is the demographic makeup of the Adani group. The the Adani and the Ambani group, they are two conglomerates with, you know, they're huge, huge multi, like, corporations that have been passed down through generations. So, like, Ambani, you know, Ambani's, like, father and grandfather, they they began this, you know, huge, huge corporation. And it's, it's, that generational wealth has continued on to to the point where they, they monopolize these industries. And Ambani, you know, is the richest man in, in India, and I think in he's one of the richest men in, in Asia. He's a billionaire. Um, but Adani and Ambani, these groups have really deep connections to the BJP, which is obviously the far-right party, ruling party in India. And, you know, Ambani specifically has given an extraordinary amount of money to the BJP party. So we see this merging of, you know, capitalists and political interests, as always. Um, And what it's doing is putting the food security of 1.3 billion people in the hands of extremely powerful companies that are using methods of extractivism and mass exploitation to profit off of this industry and accumulate wealth into the hands of of a few people. So to kind of give more context about what these laws do and and the way that they are harmful to farmers is that basically the, the idea of a mandi, which is, you know, the, the marketplace where farmers would traditionally sell their crops, was basically a space where the government could purchase agricultural outputs. So there was no private bidding over outputs by private actors, and there was a minimum support price. So the farmers were able to sell all their crops without fail, and whatever was extra in their crops would go through a public distribution system, which fed, you know, large swaths of the Indian population who relied heavily on subsidized food. By implementing this parallel private market, what the government do is doing is creating, you know, competition, you know, against 
the actual mandi. So the, the government claims that they aren't getting rid of the mandi, but when you introduce a parallel system that is privatized, what's going to happen is that, you know, perhaps in the first, second or third season of the agricultural cycle, these private actors might offer more to the farmers and say, you know, we're offering more to you. So basically purchase from us and not the mandi at the minimum support price. And, and what, what they'll do is, is make the mandi kind of obsolete if the private companies are offering more. And once the mandi dissolves, what's going to happen is that these private companies will decrease their prices that they're willing to purchase the crops at by an incredible amount. And that'll put the farmers in an extremely dire state where they'll lose money, they'll accumulate debt, and what's and and it's you know they they'll it'll allow for corporate takeover of the agricultural industry. That's kind of you know what the fear is, um, and that's obviously the government is claiming that they aren't getting rid of, rid of the mandi and that this is uh, going to be good for the farmers, but. Time and time again in history, we see how farmers are taken advantage of by huge corporations, and this is no exception. And then with the parallel markets you have, from what I understood, is one is going to have oversight, and that's the one where farmers are selling their goods, but then you have the the corporate one is deregulated. And um, it's just like kind of like if you have an unregulated space with these conglomerates, like these huge, huge corporations, like of course, like how can an everyday farmer compete when they're already so indebted and like I think we're gonna we're gonna get to that later about the type of debt that farmers are in in India but I appreciate you sharing that and then I think we're moving then on to kind of um I, I'm, I'm gonna let you lead this part because I feel like you know much more than me on this but the numbers and the figures from the protests and how they've been growing because it's it's the largest strike in the world going on right now yet you just like see things on the timeline like I sent you a tweet today where it's like people are talking more about Australia having social media ban- it's just like not on some people's radar even though these numbers are staggering. I think that's what's really significant about these protests is that the enactment of these laws come with so many layers of propaganda from the BJP that claim that these laws are good for farmers and that these laws are giving more choice to farmers and and that they'll benefit in the long term. But I think what's really significant is that farmers can see right through these new laws and the gross illusion of choice, and that's why they're protesting. So to give you a little context about kind of the figures of the protests, they kind of started in June 2020 when the laws were introduced, and now they've really expanded And the most staggering figure of these protests come from November 2020, when almost 250 million people participated in a strike of solidarity with the farmers to protest the new legislation. And, you know, that's an incredible figure compared to, you know, the population of the United States, for example. That's 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 a little over 76 percent of the population of the United States. And I don't know if we could ever, you know, it, we could ever imagine that a, a scale of a protest of that scale happening in the US because of, you know, just, I mean, India has its sheer population really lends itself to like mass participation. But also, as you were saying, like this, it, it's not getting enough attention. But essentially, you know, the protests have also expanded to include other sectors of workers. So, Mm-hmm. Laborers, you know, farmers are kisans. Kisans are is what uh, farmers are called in, in Hindi. Mazdoors, which are laborers, um, daily dairy farmers, 
commission agents, retailers, you know, feminist women's rights groups and cultural activists have been supporting the farmers' protests. And also some of the tactics that they use are railroco, which is like the railroad strike, or like buns, which are like general strikes for the state. You know, they include artists and speakers and union leaders who are addressing, you know, huge crowds and conducting sit-ins, um, especially at the border of Punjab and Haryana, which are two states, because that's where most of the farmers come from and where the Mandi system is, is really in place and, and which is really active. So those are the two states which are, which are the most threatened by these le- new legislations. And the state has responded by, you know, accusing them of blocking essential commodities from getting in and out of Punjab and Haryana. But, you know, like that's the essence of a strike. It's like you, you should listen to our demands, otherwise we will seize all labor. So it's incredibly powerful. You know, farmers are also staging protests outside jails and government offices in Punjab and contesting the reforms as they're being discussed in parliament. And I think one huge event that happened was on Republic Day on January 26, which is the anniversary of the enactment of the of India's constitution. Thousands of protesters stormed New Delhi at the Red Fort and the police enacted all forms of suppression using tear gas and batons and lathi charges. And they even dug trenches on the primary highway to prevent unions from entering the capital. And so it's, I, I think the, the farmers' protests are so significant that they're also beckoning such, you know, suppression by the state. During the Republic Day protests, the government blocked internet access in Delhi for a few days yeah. in, quote-unquote, the interests of maintaining public safety and averting public emergency. You know, internet blockades and communications blockades are also not new. You know, it's a tactic that the Indian government has used for almost a year and a half in Kashmir and, and still things are blocked. And and this has resulted in, you know, really terrible deaths of farmers in, in the course of these month-long protests from a range of causes, including suicide, police brutality, road accidents, um, and exposure to cold weather. So there's also, you know, terrible repression of, like, journalists. And, yeah, all these things are, you know, time and time again, the Indian government does this. And it, I think it shows, you know, the resilience of these farmers and workers that they're able to fight back against that repression. Yeah, in, the, in North America, and I think people who listen to this podcast are very familiar with the tactics that police use on individuals and what are the tactics that they've been using there? You've touched on a few so far, but what are the tactics that people there are being met with? The police are, they're jailing people. They are, even for the smallest, you know, interactions on the internet of, you know, protesters, you know, sharing information of, of forms of resistance. And I'll also get into that a little later because there's a there's a case going on right now against Disha Ravi who is a 21-year-old environmental activist who was put in jail for sharing a toolkit which is you know it's it's basically a document under a thousand words with like links to help the protesters and the farmers and the Indian government claimed that she is, you know, you know, under acts of sedition, that she is supporting the Khalistani movement, all sorts of conspiracies that they're kind of buying into. But she was arrested for sharing that link, or I, I think she actually created that link that was later shared by Greta Thunberg. So 
terrible repression of protesters and and also journalists who are reporting on these protests and yeah i think you know modi has refused to budge you know the bjp has refused to budge and i think it shows just the ways in which you know any act of uh, resistance is met with so much suspicion and brutality and violence and you know you're called an anti-national and you're met with the wrath of you know like the hindu nation so i think obviously there's you know terrible repression in that way but i think the farmers are facing water cannons they're facing lathi charges they're facing you know blockades and all these things to you know suppress the protest and what's really significant is that there are a lot of you know elder protesters who are um, participating in the sit-ins and even them you know the the police show no mercy to so it's pretty crazy the repression that's happening and it's really tragic but I think there's so much resilience in the Mazdurs and the Kisans and then uh, we touched on it a little bit before but it's it's the largest strike in modern history it's not really being discussed much by the western like western leftists who do hold media positions to be quite honest or like have their own big platforms I did a bit of a scan before today just to just to make sure that I'm not wrong about this and like of course like the the places like I like that are like an echo chamber like Red Nation is covering it with Harsha Walia who's been a guest um but there's other people who just aren't today I'm seeing a little bit but it's just not on people's radar the same way some other things have been including like you know like Bolivia right like that's that's that was on more people's radar I would say a little bit so like why do you think that's happening and why should it be on people's radar there's so many reasons like like that the Western media, even Western leftists don't know, you know, like have a very weak anti-imperialist lens. I think obviously it has to do with kind of the manufactured consent through American media and the global hegemony of news that obscures issues in the global South. Mm. And even leftist publications are not immune to that. But I think if we're thinking broader, you know, the United States backs these laws, these farmer laws, and, and even, you know, Biden says that it will improve the efficiency of Indian markets and attract greater private sector investment. So, you know, there, there is this deeply, there, there's a, there's deep connections between, you know, hegemony in India and hegemony in the United States. So, yeah, I think it's definitely unfortunate that these farmer strikes are not being covered more, especially considering the scale of, of how it's happening. And this is not new, you know, like there have been mass protests, you know, and strikes and worker strikes in India before as well. And those weren't covered and it, it, it's interesting, I think it, it should be covered, obviously, because, you know, the U.S. kind of historically has a, has had a hand in, like, creating the conditions for these strikes. To, to understand this issue better, it's important to go and look back into the agricultural conditions, or sorry, the historical conditions of the agricultural industry in India. So, you know, like, after the partition in 1947, India was very food insecure, following the shackles of, like, colonialism, and they really had to find a way to import a lot of grain to feed its population Um, and this led in the way for kind of developmental capitalism specifically known as the green revolution to come in and all these really insidious actors such as the world bank the ford foundation kind of the rockefeller foundation and the u.s state department they all came together to kind of implement these new productive technologies to increase agricultural output so you know it wasn't necessarily like Actually, it wasn't at all like a, a way to like help India come out of colonialism. It's really like a selfish way to like increase agricultural output, increase productivity.
productivity. So these systems of increasing agricultural output were created by the American agronomist Norman Borlaug, and that's kind of where the system of the mandi came about. But what happened is that it implemented a very hyper-productive agricultural industry, which really sets the stage for how climate change has worsened in India. Because Mm. these new kind of genetically modified seeds and and these genetically modified types of wheat and rice were being fed to Indian farmers to increase their outputs. And these new fertilizers and pesticides that farmers were being forced to use were poisoning the soil and heavily depleting the water table and poisoning the groundwater and this you know it shows it kind of set the conditions for farmer suicides as well because farmers had to take on so much debt because they weren't producing you know well enough crops or like good crops so yeah i think the u.s has a huge stake in you know in these protests and the, the conditions that surround it and to give more context you know these protests are taking place in punjab and haryana which are the two systems where the mandi system exists and it's it's wild because I think this is a really staggering statistic that Punjab is only 2% of the population, but their agricultural outputs accounts for 60 to 70% of wheat, grain, and rice that feed yeah. the whole country. So I think that's another thing. It's like, these are farmers who are feeding the nation. Yeah, like yeah. a country of 1.3 billion people. And that's such a, like, it's it's quite crazy to think that, you know, the, the government and Adani and Bani are doing this to, you know, increase their their pockets when like what's at stake is huge it's like the the food security of a of a massive massive nation so yeah i think it's definitely unfortunate that the u.s media isn't paying more attention but it's also important to look at kind of the historical conditions that and the the stake that the u.s plays in all this with farmers on strike and farmers just having so such a hard time with their crops and protesting this this implementation like these acts like people are not hard harvesting as much right now but is it in season or out of seasons i'm not too sure i i think like the effect that we'll see you know might be further into the future i'm not too sure right now because you know there are still stockpiles of like grain and wheat and rice that do exist and are being funneled through the public distribution system but yeah i think it it's wild that you know modi hasn't budged even though all these farmers like millions and millions of farmers are protesting and and going on strike what the effect that'll have is the effect that any strike would have is like if labor stops then what are we left with why do you think celebrities are talking about it and do you think that they're actually informed when they're talking about it or or it's a mix because i don't know i i have a bone to pick with mia khalifa but like i appreciate (laughs) but there's been so many other celebrities and then now you see images coming out where people um people are like even burning their photos of like greta who's like a young activist and rihanna like people are burning rihanna's photos so I'd, I'd love to hear your take on, 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 like, celebrities talking about it. What Let's make sense of that. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I, I don't know why, so, I mean, I guess I could, t- I could speculate that, like, consciousness about, like, issues in the global south are steadily increasing, you know, which is, which is great um, and awesome. But I don't know, you know, I can't, I can't tell you why Rihanna, like, specifically tweeted about it. It's, it's great that she did, but it's, it's, it's so funny because, you know, India was definitely talking about Rihanna for a week straight, you know, all these WhatsApp groups were going off. 
But yeah, it's really interesting, you know, the ways in which these kind of one-off tweets by celebrities are being so hyper-scrutinized by the BJP IT cell, which is, you know, the, the technological and communications ecosystem of Hindu fascism that literally just spreads propaganda and fake news and really influences, like, a lot. But yeah, Rihanna and Greta Thunberg tweeted about it, and the whole uh, arrest of Disha Ravi was, you know, in part because of that tweet, because she created that toolkit that Greta Thunberg like tweeted out. So it's 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 really really wild, you know. It the oldest like sanghi, which is like the right wing Hindu anger, is being you know channeled towards these famous people who are speaking out about the protests and all these like huge like baseless conspiracies are being created about how you know like Rihanna and Greta Thunberg and I'm sure like yeah Mia Khalifa and like yeah Mina Harris randomly was like they there was a panel on um Indian television about Mia Mia Mina Harris yeah it's it's so wild yeah there's all these like huge conspiracies that they're being paid by Khalistani groups to like support these protests and it's so vile that all these sanghis started posting photos of like Chris brown and like the photos of rihanna that that came out when she was like when she was assaulted by chris brown just terrible terrible misogynistic and racist things that are being spread by these you know right-wing hindus and these sanghis and it's yeah i think it's so wild because huge you know baseless conspiracies are being formed you know it reminds me of that it's always sunny meme uh where he's like piecing together all the things on the wall and he looks wild because that's literally what's happening and Kangana Ranaut also she's a famous Bollywood actress she's incredibly right-wing she's a menace like she's a terrible person she's stoking all these conspiracy theories about Rihanna you know and Greta too and she has a big platform but she has really you know like funneled all these sanghis to post abusive content and like yeah so she yeah she's terrible and like yeah i think that it's it's really terrible i guess like just the reactions to these tweets and it's you know i don't know if it's it's funny to think about whether like rihanna was like paying attention to all the backlash because you know she just tweeted like a cnn article yeah and she was like why is no one talking i know why is no one talking about this and I mean, she's she's like, I keep asking. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I don't know what compelled her to tweet that, but it's, it's great. So yeah, it's resulted in kind of the arrest, not, not the tweets, but obviously, but the Sanghi anger has resulted in the arrest of 21 year old uh, climate activist, Disha Ravi, who's from Bangalore. She created that toolkit and she was arrested by the cyber cell team of the Delhi police to quote unquote probe her conspiracy against the Indian government and her role in the Khalistani movement. So what's funny is like we have after these bills were introduced you had farmers in hundreds of gaos which are like villages who were burning effigies of Adani and Ambani who are the billionaires that profit off of these laws. And on the other hand you have all these Sanghis who are burning photos of Rihanna and Greta Thunberg and Mina Harris. So it's so bizarre kind of the state of things and just how powerful and vile the right-wing Hindus are and just like Hindu anger in general it's like one of the most vile things I've ever come across but yeah I think it's really interesting like the kind of celebrity attention and the effect that has within India. 
And there's this like added layer where I find where like um, people in the West don't know how to like uh, digest any of this because they see they don't understand like caste. They don't understand class in a country where there's no white people. So like then you see the infographics on like Instagram and like other places talking right now about Hindu phobia that's being fueled. (laughs) And like I think sometimes that's maybe the hesitancy for Western leftists to get engaged because they don't I I saw this with like the Arab Spring as well but like I see it sometimes around other issues but with this one sometimes they don't know how to interpret like that different people of color can have conflict between each other and then they just get confused or they or they're just like lazy and don't want to do the work to understand the BJP is right-wing and fascist and they are suppressing this group of people who are workers like they just don't understand a dynamic whereas like here because of like anti-racism workshops and like because there's more range they can just be like oh this is how this works like this dynamic yeah i yeah i totally agree with you and like that's that's a bone i've had to pick with like the diaspora for a long time it's like there's no nuance in like how how you know i I guess like white people understand this and, and and just the ways in which like the hindu diaspora really i don't know like caters to white people in this in this way and like you know, Hindu phobia, like just creating these like unreal things that white people have no choice but to like, I guess, out of their white guilt, like uh, agree with. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it sucks because I would love to have white people join the protest against BJP and Modi and like militantly stand up to him and stand up to Hindu fascism. But that timidity and like this whole baseless discourse about like Hindu cultural appropriation, you know, to me it's all fluff and it really it really like veers us away to the main problems that we're facing, which is like people being killed in the name or just like people being killed by Hindu fascists every day and these huge fascist, ethno-fascist and capitalist modes of dominance that are being imposed on the country and, you know, rampant casteism that is, you know, just really killing people every day. So I think, yeah, I completely agree with you. It's, it's such an interesting dynamic and it, I really compel people to look at these issues with so much more nuance and with so much more just like read more, you know, like understand more about this because it's not just like all brown people. It's like they're actual like dictators. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it was like, yeah. And like the really one of the my favorite essays, I guess, by Ambedkar, like the Dalit civil rights leader for people who don't know, was like if Hindus migrate to other regions in the world, Indian caste would become a world problem. And I think that's like what we're seeing where like now you have people who are like now doing these like infographics that are like now Hindu phobia is rising because of the way people are talking about the farmer strikes and they don't know how to or like sometimes people will tweet things that are like if you're not Indian, you shouldn't talk about this issue because they think it's fueling Hindu phobia when it's like, no, that this is like about the BJP and like what's happening. And, you know, caste is is so pervasive in the West as well. Like, it, it completely, you know, migrates. There's so much casteism in the United States as well. I would recommend people look up Equality Labs and the work they've done in serving, especially casteism within the tech industry. But, yeah, it's totally endemic and it's, it, it's happening, yeah. So we're going to shift gears a little bit. <laughs> if you're okay with it, kind of 
telling us more about the Farmers Produce Trade and Commerce Act and kind of, yeah, what that means for people who don't know about it or aren't familiar with it. Yeah, so um, I kind of went over the parallel system uh, previously, but I can go through kind of the three laws that are being enacted and what they mean. So the, the, the first is like the Farmers Produce Trade and Commerce Act, and this is kind of what expands the marketplace from just being one between where the government buys off the crops to one where it really liberalizes that market and now the the marketplace is any place of production, collection, or aggregation. So that's kind of what it means when like private actors are coming in and they're now being able to buy off crops. So yeah, that's the first act. And the second act is the Farmers Agreement on Price Assurance and Farm Services Act. And this is what the farmers are protesting against that, that they call contract farming. Contract farming is basically when farmers enter into a binding agreement with companies to produce a certain amount of crops at a specific price. And at the time of the actual transaction, the private company under this law has the ability to refuse that deal to go through for a number of reasons. Let's say they don't agree with like the quality of the crop or the prices have either gone down or up, but the farmer, and while the company can, can, you know, break out of that contract, the farmer has no legal recourse to make the deal go through and get paid. And, you know, it's, it's crazy to think about because, you know, even if they did have have legal recourse, you know, what is a farmer in court facing like a huge company who can, and conglomerate who can how many times do they win i know like it's the the odds are stacked against them so that's what they're processing against called contract farming and then the last one is the essential commodities act and this relates to stockpiles so under this law corporations can stockpile grain that was initially supposed to go through the public distribution system and feed people who need subsidized food So these companies will essentially have monopoly over food security in India. And if the country was ever to go into famine, which is a complete possibility due to climate change and the, you know, huge potential of droughts, these companies can monopolize, you know, the the sale of these stockpiles and sell their stockpiles at obscene prices, which leads to, you know, the debts of of millions of poor people who can't afford to buy these price gouged, you know, stockpiles. So it's so dangerous like this law is extremely dangerous and it's really sad i think (laughs) that 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 this is happening but yeah as i said before there's also the loss of the mandi so that parallel market will eventually lead to like will eventually dissolve the mandi farmers will be at the mercy of these huge conglomerates and the mandis you know are are not also are sorry are not only affecting the farmers but mandis also take on a lot of like developmental work in villages so like they build link roads they maintain village waterworks and they will no longer have like adequate funds so it also gives leeway for for private corporations to have monopoly over like different resources as well. Well, it's also kind of like, I don't know, dystopian if you think about a few conglomerates owning like kind of the food security of a country. It's just like at their will to like withhold food and just let people die. And, and like you said, they like even trigger a famine if they want. Totally, yeah. And it's, you know, climate climate change and like the climate crisis is like already affect, like it's already been affecting farmers, which is why they've been committing suicide tragically because there's no groundwater to you know produce their crops so there 
it's all been poisoned by genetically modified crops and like companies like Monsanto who are definitely screwing over farmers in so many ways. So yeah, I think the conjunction of like a monopolized takeover of this industry along with the climate crisis would lead to and has been leading to hundreds if not millions of deaths. You've like touched on this throughout a bit, but there's just been like amazing, like you said, like resistance and participation and there's elders involved or student activists. So if you could like give us a bit more about Dalit Sikh uh, leadership and participation that's been going on and ongoing throughout these strikes. Yeah, so in addition to being like a, uh, a strike of, of labor, it's, it's also caste struggle is really pivotal to the to this to these protests. And obviously, like the majority of these protests, because they're happening in Punjab and Haryana and because they're led by farmers, they are being led by the Sikh community. And one of the key unions that's taking part in these protests is the Punjab Keith Mazdoor Union, whose membership consists of majority landless Dalit farmers. So in the state of Punjab, the Jat caste, which is the, I guess, what you would call the upper caste within Sikhism, they make up 25% of the state's population, but they own most of the like agricultural land. And Dalit farmers who make up 32% of Punjab only own 2.5% of land. So that's, that's also a pretty staggering statistic. And the BJP, you know, has always used this kind of divide and conquer tactic to faction farmers and workers. So it's I think it's really important that these struggles center the Dalit struggle as well. And and you can see that, you know, through at the protests and at the sit-ins, a bunch of student associations like the Ambedkar Student Association from Punjab University, they've set up a free library with books by Bhagat Singh and Ambedkar at the Singhu border protest site. And one of the main slogans of the protests is Kisan Mazdoor Ekta Zindabad, which is long live farmer labor unity, which shows, you know, that part of these protests is striving for class unity, given that the Kisan has historically been a Jat, while the Mazdur, the laborer, is historically a Dalit. So a major part of the campaign is spearheaded by the Zameen Prapti Sangarsh Committee to help Dalits secure ownership of village lands and really strive towards the kind of egalitarianism that Sikhism espouses and truly challenge Hindu society at its core. And I think, you know, to me, that's the BJP's worst nightmare. That's Modi's worst nightmare. It's like class unity, it's caste unity, it's destroying caste at its core. I think Punjabi Dalits are an extremely important and crucial contingent of these protests, especially yeah, like Dalit that. women. I think it's part of like why we see these BJP like IT cells and, and just people freaking out because they're seeing that like people can work across a little bit of these like differences that really kind of cemented themselves post-partition more than before and like that carry so far and then women have been such a big part of these strikes and i was watching a vox clip where they were also talking about women and they were like despite a patriarchal society women have been central to these strikes but what's interesting is women i think in like pakistani and indian organizing have always been prominent and it shouldn't be shocking i think at least i don't know if that's the feeling you have but like when i was watching the clip i was like i'm not shocked that women are central to this and like a pillar and i think that's like a western kind of gaze to be surprised like Women do so much in different parts of India. When Vijay was on, he was talking about like women during COVID doing a lot of outreach 
And it's just, I don't know, like the West also like kind of is really into the pink sari wearing <laughs> like kind of gangs. Yeah, Galavi gangs. So it's like, it's like, why are you all shocked? But like, if you, if you could just shed some light on the role of women in these strikes, um, we know that women are also being arrested. Grandmas are being arrested, but like also like, how are they organizing as labor activists? Obviously like women, there's so much about like reproductive and like feminized labor that's always overlooked within these protests because it's like who's who's even if you know who's doing the cooking who is taking care of the children while people protest all of that is labor and that's labor that's like obviously unpaid and unrecognized and I think that's so important to like any protest there are women on the front lines and there are women like you know taking care of children and cooking food and you know just so much care work is being done so yeah I think women are totally central to any struggle and in particular like women have been have been the ones being arrested you know and and whose you know cases have also gotten a lot of attention so like for example Nodeep Kaur is a member of the Mazdoor Adhikar Sangatan and she's a 23 year old Dalit labor activist so she was arrested on January 12th where she participated in a protest held by unpaid laborers near the single border between Haryana and Delhi and she's she's been in jail in Haryana since then you know charged with obviously extremely convoluted and untrue offenses like right like I mean maybe there but just like the government is obviously arrests people on baseless charges but like she's been part of the protest since December 2020 and part of her role is to really highlight the issue of landless and marginalized laborers specifically Dalit Punjabi laborers so the state of you know Mazdoors in general really relies on the financial health of farmers and that's why mm-hmm. so many Dalit women have joined the protests because you know they're not only exploited as unpaid workers but they're also caste oppressed women and you know Mazdoors and Dalits don't have the same minimum guaranteed salary the way farmers might have and oftentimes they work under the farmers so yeah I think one statistic is that like 73% of rural women are engaged in farming activities but only 12.8% of them own the land that they work on so yeah I think women play such a important pivotal role in all this even if you think back to like Shaheen Bag um, during the CAA protests those were you know elder women who would conduct sit-ins for months at a time and incredible sense of solidarity and unity and so much resilience against this Hindu fascist government that I find extremely inspiring so yeah I think it's the role of women is like absolutely fundamental in so many different ways so yeah I I completely agree with you it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone because like that's that's how all protests kind of function it's like through the care work and the invisibilized labor of women what what's the update on like laws presently and where are they right now what's really notable is that like you know Modi has completely stood still in all this and like you know he's even gone to the extent of like accusing farmers of being parasites anti-national Khalistani terrorists like you know him and his supporters are saying that so like it's extremely like just so you know messed up that, that that's happening and and I think what's amazing about this is like the farmers are extremely smart and they aren't taking any bullshit so like the Supreme Court issued an order putting the farm laws on hold and ordered kind of the formation of a four-member mediation committee to help the parties negotiate. But the farmers' leaders are like, I mean, there's no, there's no negotiation either. You like repeal the laws 
make it so that, you know, these laws won't enable corporate takeover and also like the myriad of other problems we as farmers face in terms of like suicides and the amount of debt we've accrued. So they've rejected these like court appointed mediation committees and and they've stayed, you know, protesting. So I think that's really incredible to me. Like it shows how much they're not striving for incrementalism. They're like striving for revolution, you know. So I think that's really inspiring to me. Right now, I think a lot of attention is being focused on Disha Ravi, who was arrested. But I'm, you know, excited to see how the farmers' protests will evolve. And I hope the celebrities have the same energy for calling for her to be let out of the jail. <laughs> like, but now I have some questions from people who've submitted, but also myself and like us to just like kind of maybe get into the granular with a few other things. So Joe Biden, we touched on a bit before, is, is not really touching this, I guess. And it's it's good for America to have this be, this act and the farmers bills implemented. But Justin Trudeau put out a video and uh, Jagmeet Singh um, has also made multiple statements. And then in, we had um, and Can Poly Twitter, it was trending to call for sanctions on India. Do you view that as like a tactic or a method that would work? I think sanctions are really violent in general. Like Mm -hmm. just the history of sanctions, it's such an imperialist tactic to put sanctions on, you know, the the people of the the country who, you know, are struggling for their freedom. So yeah, I mean, it's been a tactic used in, you know, in Cuba, there's a blockade, but I think like sanctions in general are probably just like not a good tactic. I think the U.S. has obviously a vested interest in the BJP and like in Modi and relations with Modi. So like, I think that that'll continue on, you know, like I don't see Joe Biden like making any appeals to like support the farmers because he sees this as a way to deregulate the market and eventually, you know, like global trade and like is good for the U.S. and is good for the U.S. economy. So I don't see him, you know, making any appeals. I think the case of Canada is really interesting because there's so many Punjabi Sikhs in Canada. There's a huge diaspora of Punjabi Sikhs and I'm sure that they're putting a lot of pressure on the government. But yeah, I think that's that's a really interesting question. Yeah. Yeah, Canada. Yeah, definitely. I think the, the role of Punjabi Sikhs in Canada and even like there's other South Asians who are progressive who have been pushing like as a Pakistani, I'm on a bunch of email lists for different things and yeah it's it's definitely something that people were pushing and that's why i think people are kind of calling for sanctions but i think liberals call for sanctions on countries that they don't and they don't think it through because then we see what the sanctions on iran have done so i appreciate the nuance with that and then we talked a bit about farmer suicides and i always find it alarming that people don't know about this history of farmer suicide so i wanted to just get a little bit deeper if we can because in the last two years there have been over 20,000 farmer suicides and I always find it so like, like it's, it's just like they in, often, uh, they ingest pesticides and it's due to the inability to repay loans that they've taken from like private landlords and banks. And like the idea of like even ingesting the pesticides that you use on your land, like, I don't know if it's kind of like the writer in me or like the person who thinks about these layers and like necropolitics and death and dying but I've always found it kind of weird when I talk to somebody in Canada and they don't know and when it's like such a trend and we would know about farmer deaths here. And there have been there have been farmer deaths in North America. 
uh, or farmer suicides and it's suicide triggered by economic instability and precarity. And so one question that was submitted was, is the government trying to spin the enforcement of the laws as a response to the suicide or protesters? But also if you could give us a little bit more insight into why, like not why this happens, but kind of like the the context of all of this. I think farmer suicides are, I mean, it's such a systemic problem in India. I think since 1991, which was the liberalization of the Indian market, 300,000 Indian farmers have committed suicide, which, as you said, is such a staggering figure. And yeah, there's been a lot of research done by P. Sainath, if anyone wants to look further into that. But, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know if the enforcement of the laws is a response to the suicides. I think the suicides have been largely overlooked and attributed to actually, like, a lot of the time the government will attribute them to personal failings, like drinking too much, you know, like... You can't pay your loan. Yeah. Your land is not fertile. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or you're not making it fertile. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, obviously, there's a huge stigma of like Punjabi Sikhs and alcohol. Like, there's high rates of alcoholism, but it's also a way that the government is used to like scapegoat Sikhs. It's like, you know, they're probably drinking too much. That's why they're committing suicides. But I mean, the reasoning I think is extremely, you know, a socioeconomic one that ever since. It's not, it's not a coincidence that ever since the liberalization of the market, there's just been so much capability for foreign players to come, to come in and control farms and agriculture. And I definitely think that like the enforcement of like GMOs and like Monsanto, like in India has contributed to farmer suicides because these are all neoliberal laws at its core. And I think like the green revolution directly lends itself to climate change. And by imposing these high yielding varieties of rice and wheat and GMO altered grains, these impositions, they've poisoned the groundwater and made it drop to really critical levels. So farmers are really struggling to save their crops and they've been digging bore wells and loading their fields with chemicals to, to fend off pests. And that's made them accumulate a very large amount of debt that is something that translates throughout generations. But what I think, you know, what's what's really interesting now and important now is that like farmers are seeing another out to their situation, which is like struggle and revolution. So like that's really inspiring to me. It's like obviously like farmer suicides still happen at a high frequency, but like farmers are through this protest, we can see how farmers are not taking any more shit and are like, we want our conditions to change. Otherwise, you well, like what do you you have so little to lose and everything to win so like that's what farmers are are i think that's what's important to farmers i i think one thing that i hope to see more of is like the international solidarity between farmers around the world because you know landless farmers especially like dalit landless farmers like there's so many parallels to the struggles of other landless farmers in other countries like in 2020 the brazilian landless workers movement they sent out a message of solidarity and lit a candle in solidarity with the indian farmers and that's incredible to me because that's probably before so many like u.s pundit and media people knew about the protests but the brazilian landless farmers movement knew that indian farmers were struggling and they sent out a message of solidarity so i think that's really powerful to me and i i hope that continues on especially when i'm thinking yeah. about like farmers in the u.s who are not covered under the like national labor relations board like they're not protected under that and so they're ex incredibly vulnerable even though they produce food for the whole country so i think there's so much potential for solidarity 
Yeah, and even in in Costa Rica, you see uh, peasant farmers and like the way conglomerates again came in and and I didn't necessarily create a dual market, but it again created some type of market situation where a way of life got so altered for so many that it destabilized them. But I guess one thing I wanted to also touch on with you as another diasporic person <laughs> is why are our solidarities being connected so important? Because one thing that kind of I notice is that when people like feel and this is like kind of on topic off topic but like I think you're so brilliant so I want to ask it but like there's certain celebrities where like they may have never spoken out on a single issue but spoke out on this because of a kind of connection they have to this issue because they are Punjabi or Indian or South Asian but they don't speak out on other issues and you've done a beautiful job in this episode of like connecting how all of this is actually enmeshed in different things like class or caste or like American foreign policy even. And so like to wrap up, I'd want to talk about like after this, what can we do? But right now, like why is it important to understand that solidarities are connected? I really see that like this age of neoliberalism is really important to speak out against because it's so insidious and it's it's wrapped in so many layers of propaganda of like, you know, liberalizing the economy will be good for workers. But people really need to analyze like the nuance of that. Like, I, I mean, this may be naive, but like, I'm just thinking like colonialism was such a directly oppressive form of domination that like you know people fought back against and neoliberalism like seems more insidious than colonialism it's like i mean obviously colonialism was masked in so many layers of propaganda as well but like neoliberalism seems so much more insidious in the ways that like our communication works in the ways like now we're in an era of like digital like digital communication and like you know moving past kind of that analog mode of oppression but like now i think it's really really important to connect the struggles of neoliberalism because like the free market will not save us it'll it'll kill us and like that's Mm -hmm. that's I think like something that I've learned it's like we need to know more about these struggles because they're happening all around the world and not getting media attention because they're like directly felt by like farmers and workers you know it's it's not like people aren't necessarily like this is happening in in conjunction like people are educating themselves about like what capitalism is what imperialism is what what neoliberalism is but there are people who feel those things on a daily basis and like have no other choice to speak out and like fight back against it so it's relevant to their whole livelihood as it should be to all of us so I think that's why it's so important it's like we have to be like staunch anti-imperialist to really overcome like these forces because they're so oppressive and they're encroaching on us you know in in a way that we might not even realize and they're seeping into our everyday modes of life so i think yeah the struggle represents a like much broader struggle of like all the landless farmers and all the landless peasants and all the workers who are fighting back against these terrible systems of oppression we've talked about like kind of social media a bit but what can people do that's maybe like more material and and who can they follow maybe? Yeah, I think that's one thing I think about the role of social media is that like the Indian state is directly targeting journalists in India who are speaking out against this. So I think that in conjunction with the like media and communications blockade that that's happening you know to make sure that protesters are not like communicating with each other and like you know just it, it's it's a form it's it's another form of like a, a you know like a, 
a sanction or a blockade. And I think one thing that we can do is like support local journalists who are on the ground in India. Recently, like NewsClick has been under a lot of attack. Their journalists have been questioned by the police. I think some of them have been arrested or they're under a lot of scrutiny. So definitely supporting like NewsClick, The Caravan, which is really wonderful on the ground investigative reporting publication. I definitely support them because they are also under attack by the Indian state. And then the Internet Freedom Foundation in India is doing really great work to report on information about the blockades and the information and the, and the internet uh, shutdowns. And they do a lot of work as well in terms of countering drone surveillance by the police as well. And then I think supporting the unions like the Kisan Sabha, you know, all the, there's several unions. So I definitely recommend you look up, you know, what unions are participating in the strikes. And then Kalsa Aid, which is a organization led by Sikh activists and, and organizers who are distributing aid on the ground. I think that's a great place to donate to. But yeah, I think that my main advice is to just like get more informed about what's happening and like stay up to date with like the activists that are being arrested and, and like the ways that you can contribute to their bail or like them being released. And I think definitely supporting journalists on the ground right now. One for one more time, where can people find you online? My Twitter is at Priya V. Prabhakar, and my Instagram is at Priya underscore Prabhakar. And if you want to send me an email, it's Priya Prabhakar32 at gmail.com. Yeah. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed the first half of this episode with Priya. We've come up with some pretty comprehensive show notes, so we hope you check those out on Substack. Continue listening for our conversation with Vijay Prashad. Hi everyone, today on Hibifty Please, I'm so lucky to co-host with my friend Priya, and we are hosting uh, Vijay Prashad, who's already been on this show before. Uh, how are you today, Vijay? Fine, thanks. Great. Yeah. Uh, nice to be with you. Super. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. And uh, Priya and I have a question set and we're going to focus a bit on India for the first half of this episode and then okay. maybe go a bit into a few other um, global uh, concerns that we have presently. So we know that the farmers protest in India is still going on. And again, people should listen to the conversation Priya and I have <laughs> that will be released at the same time. And one of the key stories of unity in India was the farmers protests and struggle. And we hope people keep discussing it. And currently India is the epicenter of the COVID pandemic. So we wanted to ask you, how has the current state of COVID in India and the variants changed the protests? And can you speak a bit to the carnage that's happening right now in India? Well, um, you know, the first thing is that this is just appalling mismanagement and um, uh, lack of preparation by the government. Uh, most people in India don't even know the name of the health minister. Um, happens to be a man by the name of Harsh Vardhan. But, um, you know, he's basically not been out there in front. Um, and the prime minister who's eager to be everywhere and talk about everything, um, that's Mr. Narendra Modi, has been really um, absent from the steering wheel when it comes to information provision to the public. I mean, one of the key things for any government is to provide up to date scientific information to try to calm nerves, to prevent rumors from spreading, um, to provide the very best and accurate information about what's happening with oxygen, what's happening with hospital beds, what's happening with ventilators and so on. 
after the first run of the pandemic, uh, the first few months last year, Mr. Modi callously said, we'll get this done in 18 days. He picks 18 because that's the number of days uh, of the Mahabharat battle it, at Kurukshetra, the battle, um, you know, the kind of mythical battle of the past, which took place apparently over 18 days. Well, it does in the Mahabharat, in the text. So he picks 18 days and says, we'll beat it in 18 days. Well, we're 56 weeks later, and that's a lot more than 18 days. Um, and it's nowhere near. Uh, so there's one thing is mismanagement. That's the surface thing. Underneath that is erosion. You know, India spends about just about little more than 1% of the gross domestic product on health. Um, that's the government expenditure. It's one of the lowest in the world, uh, appallingly low. And this has meant that public health is underserved. The women who go door to door, um, the women who work as community health providers, ASHA workers, basically are treated as volunteers and barely paid. So the infrastructure of public health in India is completely eroded, destroyed. Um, and there's no provision for taking care of things. You know, it's not difficult, guys. It's not difficult to create medical oxygen. In many advanced industrial countries, every hospital has a little unit that creates its own medical oxygen. I'm not a scientist, but I read about this stuff. And it's something about removing the nitrogen and you get pretty decent quality medical oxygen. Doesn't seem to be that complicated, you know, and yet there's just not enough capacity um, in a, you know, in a, in a moderately industrialized country like India, there should be at least in hospitals, the capacity to make their own medical oxygen and so on, just nothing. So it's carnage. And then on top of that, of course, there's the social crisis and the economic crisis. Um, you know, uh, migrant labor sent home last year with just a few hours notice, four hours notice. Mr. Modi said, everybody go home. And he didn't even consult his own cabinet. I mean, that has come out now. They talk about callousness, lack of planning, forethought, rationality, basic words, by the way, apolitical words. I mean, come on. These are not political words. You know, planning is not a political word. Forethought is not a political word and so on. So I'm not even making a critique from some ideological standpoint. I'm just talking about basic governance, basic common sense, nothing. And on top of that, they've allowed public health systems to erode. People had been protesting, tens of thousands of farmers since the 26th of November. Um, and, you know, many of them are still there at the entry points into Delhi. But this catastrophe, this wave or whatever you call it, has dampened spirits. It's removed the cameras from there. The cameras are now at crematoria where there are queues, lines for people to get cremated. You know, there are lines, queues. Um, it's taken the cameras away from the protests as it should. I mean, the cameras should be at the crematoria. That's where they should be. But it also means, of course, that the protest is no longer front and center. It's still continuing, but at a different kind of level. It'll pick up anytime because the government and the farmers unions are at an impasse. So it can pick up at any time. The, the next question I had was actually going to be about the crematoriums, the mass crematoriums, and basically those images being the ones which are in the global media right now, representing India. And I wanted to ask essentially about how BJP has been using kind of deceptive propaganda around this and just understanding what their propaganda is 
when, in response to COVID. I read this article by Arundhati Roy, and she talks about how in 2017, Modi was, was claiming that there's more Muslim graveyards than there are spaces for Hindus to have crematoriums, um, and how that's, you know, that that's showing how the state government is pandering to Muslims and not Hindus. Um, and now as we see these images, I was just wondering what you think about the way the COVID disaster has been propagated to the media, how, how Modi is responding. Modi has been totally callous, you know, because Modi has continued, uh, for instance, to campaign in the elections in West Bengal. I thought the election commission made a very injudicious decision to have the West Bengal, West Bengal is my state, I was born and brought up there. Um, they had the state elections to the assembly in eight phases. They phased it out. I mean, you know, that means campaigning went on forever. And Modi, Amit Shah, the BJP of West Bengal continued to campaign. The left suspended the campaign, even to some extent, the Trinamool Congress suspended the campaign. The BJP just continued. They continued with those campaigns. You know, every 12 years, according to astrological commitments, every 12 years, there is a gathering at Prayag where these two rivers meet, and that's called the Kumbh Mela. There's a Mela every year, but the Kumbh happens every 12 years. Well, the Kumbh happened 11 years ago. This is the 11th year after the Kumbh Mela. They could have said, no Kumbh Mela this year. you got to wait till the 12th year, you know, but there was some kink in the astrological charts or whatever they said we have to do it this year the government could have banned the kum mela and said do it next year according to the 12-year routine they didn't they allowed tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people to come to prayag you know the king former king of nepal for instance went to the kum mela he returned home infected COVID, infected his family you know i mean this is a super spreader event so modi has been totally callous and I want people to understand something. This business about cremation and burial and all that, this is a nonsense. I, it's a nonsense thing. Um, I don't even understand why this is an issue. You know, frankly, it's nonsense. We shouldn't even entertain it. Fact of the matter is that they are backed up in disposing of the dead, you know, and there's got to be dignity in death, not this. Um, there's simply no capacity in hospital beds to get treated and there's no capacity for dignified uh, disposal of the body. You know, my mother died, for instance, in September of last year, 2020, and she was cremated in Calcutta. Um, that's an electric crematorium. You know, you go there, it's an electric crematorium. It, there's no wood. Um, something like, f I don't know, five quintals of wood I use per body, you know, wood. And imagine the scale of the crematoria i mean so much wood is being burnt imagine the impact this is going to have um, they are running out of wood i mean i i think that we need to modernize this you know electric crematoria just fine but the point isn't that and by the way wood crematoria takes much longer to manage that's part of the reason why there's such long lines um let's not get into that because this is a red herring this idea that hindus muslims all that it's bogus they are indian people they're standing in a queue or lying in a queue waiting for a dignified bed. It's ridiculous. You know, it's really ridiculous. I'm so sorry to hear about your mother. Actually, my grandfather as well. He was cremated in uh, in Kolkata and it wasn't it was an electric. Yeah. Another like electric crematorium. Might have, um, might have I, been I also, the same crematorium. Uh, honestly, it might have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was it's very it, it was very jarring to watch even. But just what you were saying about 
just there's no dignity in death and and you know since people are dying in mass it's it's just so callous i wanted to also just ask a little bit about kind of what the discourse we've been seeing about the global vaccine apartheid and the way that specifically that's affected covid in india how can we kind of see the flow of global capital and the profit motive being used by pharmaceutical companies and imperialist countries and how do you kind of interpret Biden's stonewalling of the patent waiver and, you know, Bill Clinton even having a space in this discourse saying that he opposes lifting the vaccine patent protections. How do you interpret kind of the vaccine apartheid that's happening across the world and how does that affect India? Well, I mean, um, what does one even, how do you even talk about this stuff? I mean, honestly, right? There's 7.9 billion people on the planet. Let's say that we need to have about half the population vaccinated, you know, 3 billion odd vaccine doses. We know that apart from Johnson and Johnson, and I think there may be one more vaccine, you need two doses per um, vaccine. The Canadians are sitting on five doses um, per head. Why? I don't know. Somebody needs to ask Justin Trudeau. I mean, it's a scandal. This uh, pseudo liberal country, which sells arms around the world and overthrows governments in order for its mining companies to benefit. Now they are hoarding vaccines. I mean, you know, the brand of Canada needs to be flushed down the toilet, frankly. Uh, it's it's ridiculous. I, I don't understand how Canadians will be able to look people in the world in the eyes. You know, it's worse than the United States because five vaccines per head, what are you hoarding them for? I mean, you're basically denying somebody a vaccine, really. That's really what's happening. So that's there. Um, why aren't they not only um, lifting the patent waiver, which India and um, South Africa has asked the WTO uh, to you know, go forward, but also the United States has exercised its right under the Defense Protection Act to prevent the export from the US of pretty harmless inputs for vaccines, including plastic bags and of various kinds. I don't know, must be some specialized plastic bag guys because plastic bags can be made all over the world. I don't really know exactly what these inputs are, but I saw a list of them. And apparently pharmaceutical makers around vaccine makers say that these are crucial inputs and the United States exercising the Defense Production Act is preventing countries like India from producing more vaccines. That's one issue. Secondly, yes, um, the patent should be lifted. Look, in the 1928, penicillin was discovered in a lab in Oxford University in, in the UK. Um, Oxford University, to its great credit, decided not to patent penicillin. It was then manufactured in the United States by Merck and others. They manufactured it. And then it was one of the first Indian public sector pharmaceutical companies was Hindustan Antibiotics, set up in 1955 in Pune. I visited that place. It's really interesting. Uh, Hindustan Antibiotics produced penicillin for India. I mean, I'm allergic to penicillin, so I'm terrified of it because it can kill me. But I know it's incredibly life-saving for lots of people in a basic way. It's the most basic antibiotic, isn't it? I mean, sulfur drugs, penicillin, and so on. There's no patent on it. You know, wh why should there be patent? You know, firstly, why should there be private pharmaceutical production? Why isn't it in the public sector? I grew up with an Indian public sector pharmaceutical industry. We had perfectly good medicines as, when I was a child. Um, everything was available pretty reasonably priced. 
now the Serum Institute of India, read, led by the Punawala family, it's not a public sector enterprise, it's a private sector company. Punawala's are selling vaccines at three, four times the market rate. That's ridiculous, you know, it's ridiculous. They, they're, you see, there's a phrase I want people to use from now on. When we talk about war, we talk about war profiteers. There are pandemic profiteers. Punawala family, they are pandemic profiteers. You know, these Pfizer, Merck. Firstly, there's no Moderna vaccine. It's an MIT vaccine, you know, and it's it's funded by the US government. You know, there is no AstraZeneca. That's an Oxford vaccine. You know, I mean, these are public sector vaccines, which they're making money on. So I, I think it's a immediately, of course, patents have to be waived, Defense Production Act has to be suspended, etc, etc, etc. But countries need to basically say we are no longer playing with the trade related intellectual property measures, we are going to reject trips, reject trims, and we're going to upgrade and create our own public sector pharmaceutical, you know, the pandemic should teach countries that lesson. And so should vaccine apartheid, by the way, teach them the lesson. I know that in India, um, a lot of state governments are charging 600 rupees for the vaccine, and then private hospitals are charging 1200 rupees. I just based on like the the income inequality in India, like, how do you think that would be accessible to folks, the, the millions of people who want to get vaccinated? Because, you know, 1200 rupees is a huge amount of money for most of India who's on who are under the poverty line. So yeah, just wondering your thoughts I on mean, that. Your your question has the answer in it. You know, this is un unaffordable. Um, let's ask Bill Clinton, that great oracle of all things decent in the world. Let's ask Bill Gates. I mean, these are the people who are lining up against the patent waivers. You know, these are the people who believe in, in the privatization of healthcare. You see, Bill Gates has fashioned himself as a big healthcare savior. But actually, he's 100% for privatization of healthcare. And then at the margins, his foundation provides tiny amounts of, you know, uh, philanthropy at the margins, you know, he, he, I would like to have Bill Gates taxed at 35% or 40% of the prevailing tax rate, rather than hide all the money from taxation in this foundation and then pretend that he's, you know, white knight promoting privatization of medicine. So, I mean, if people want to go the Bill Gates or Bill Clinton road, they are welcome. But that means the wreck of the world. You know, Bill Clinton is not, he, he should have no say in anything. He's an unelected private citizen uh, who, while he was president of the United States, increased poverty for people, destroyed the welfare system. Why he's taken seriously, why Tony Blair is taken seriously. These people are actually dangerous. They are criminals. You know, Tony Blair and George W. Bush are war criminals. Nobody should take them seriously. And so is Bill Clinton because let me tell you something when the monica Lewinsky scandal was hotting up in washington dc bill clinton authorized cruise missiles to be fired at khartoum sudan they were fired at a factory in khartoum in a civilian part of khartoum it was the al shifa factory the factory was leveled hit to the ground that was sudan's only pharmaceutical factory they said it was a chemical weapons manufacturing unit there was no chemical weapons there it was al shifa pharmaceuticals they knocked that down sudan was never able to rebuild that bill clinton is a war criminal and a war criminal precisely because he knocked out a pharmaceutical factory 
in Sudan. In the middle of this pandemic, he should be ashamed of himself. He shouldn't be saying anything. Thank you for reminding us of that. I've only seen it a little bit on the internet, but it's important to think about that. And, and to bring up Bush and kind of the liberal lefts, not liberal left, liberals reimagining of Bush with his paintings and like, I don't know, it's disgusting. But uh, another question we both had was about, and, and this actually came a few times from people like who listen to this show, is how can we uh, uplift Dalit and caste oppressed people who are even further at risk of COVID and are being denied? healthcare in this moment in India. And we know that they are also the people who are working at crematoriums or other jobs where they'll be at high risk, risk and exposure. And are there mutual aid efforts or organizing that people in diaspora can, can support or help? I mean, frankly, um, people in diaspora need to work on their own governments. Um, they need to get their own government to do whatever they're going to do, because there's no need to patronize um, Dalit and um, you know oppressed caste people because they are they are leading their own fight. Uh, they are part of trade unions. They are part of you know various organizations, community organizations, and so on. They they don't need anybody to come and save them. You know, from least of all from the diaspora. I mean, I see things on the internet, and I feel that there's a little bit of the savior complex at work here because people who make these kind of gestures, don't really understand that these communities have a long history of struggle and they lead their own struggles. You know, uh, you're, you're, you're talking about crematorium workers. I mean, you know, I remember in the 1950s, reading about in the 1950s, there were strikes at crematoria. Um, what needs to happen is that people in the United States and Canada need to pressure these governments not to drive an agenda through the IMF that essentially criminalizes unionization in the third world. Um, because the IMF makes this push for so-called labor market reform, then they, they, they allow the ruling class in a place like India to drive an anti-trade union agenda. That anti-trade union agenda affects Dalits and, and, and oppressed castes, you see. So what needs to happen is that the US government and Canadian government need to be pressured not to drive a so-called labor market reform agenda. We need to fight for trade union rights and so on. That's absolutely imperative. You know, um, some of the most vigorous mass organizing um, of Dalit and oppressed caste, uh, you know, communities has happened through labor organizing. As it turns out, when you look at the record, I mean, the, the first uh, book I did was on sanitation workers. Um, and their principal form of building power was in sanitation worker unions in municipalities and so on. 1957, there was a heroic strike in Delhi, you know, uh, and it was led by mainly Dalits. Uh, they led the strike, you know, they were not looking for somebody abroad to uh, write them a petition. You know, they, they, people don't need that. What they need is they need the leg, the boot of these governments, the U.S. government to be lifted off their ability to organize themselves. You know, you see what I'm getting at? Um, you know, you don't need to start some sort of, uh, you know, fundraising and so on. That would be very valuable, but that doesn't solve anything. That's a low budget version of Bill Gates's ideology. And we don't need a low budget version of Bill Gates. What we need is the ability for people to organize themselves. And that is denied them because these governments are suffocating those rights, hard-won rights, you know, to make your organizations, your trade unions, and so on. You look at this farmer's struggle. Many of the farmers' unions coming from Punjab, they are led by Dalit farmers, you know, many of them. Uh, the, I mean, I know that in, in, in Rajasthan, for instance, it's just like this, uh, you know, exactly like this. I, I did a lot of my 
early work in Punjab, uh, where 50% of farm workers are Dalits, 50% are Dalits, um, and they are there in the forefront. So people should not misunderstand this and, and think, how do we help them? But they don't need your help, guys. They really don't need your help. What they need is your solidarity, and your solidarity is political. So the way you give political solidarity with somebody is to build power in your own location and change the balance of forces. The correlation of forces is against them. And that's what we need to change, you know, not be out there saying I've come here to help you. Yeah, speaking of fundraising, a lot of recently in the in the diaspora, but also in India, a lot of the fundraising efforts have been led by Seva International, and they have raised almost like five million, it must be more, five million dollars. They are under the umbrella of the RSS and the Sangh, like they're essentially like serving as a humanitarian aid arm of, you know, Hindu fascist groups. <laughs> I, I'm just wondering how how do you see kind of the co-option of aid by right-wing Hindu nationalist forces? How does that help to bolster Modi's image, especially as, you know, a lot of good faith people are trying to donate under this guise of humanitarianism when they're just kind of bolstering the RSS? See, this is an old story. Um, when in the 1980s, the Hindu right, its so-called Sangh Parivar or its family, um, they had an organization called the Vishwa Hindu Parishad. And this organization, Vishwa Hindu Parishad, set up, I think, headquarters in, I think it's a well, well named, they had the headquarters in Berlin, Connecticut. And they were the Vishwa Hindu Parishad of America. At that time, they used to travel around house to house raising money where people would buy bricks to build the temple. So, you know, the Ram Temple in Ayodhya. Um, this is just before the destruction of the Babri Mosque in um, December 6, 1992. So that was the early foray into, you know, fundraising. And it was highly sectarian, ideological, anti-Muslim fundraising. Well, um, from about 1993, there was an earthquake in Maharashtra. And you started to see the RSS groups. The RSS in North America is not called the RSS. It's called the Hindu Swayam Sevak Sangh, the HSS. The HSS used to be headquartered in Texas. Uh, the, the, one of the main HSS people's daughter was almost in Obama's cabinet. Um, I had written a piece there and, and helped uh, her on her way out of that cabinet. Uh, it was called Obama's Indian. If anybody's interested, you can read it on, online. Because I said that, look, her dad is the leader of the Hindu right wing. And she herself was a youth leader of this organization, but she used to work, you know, in D.C. for the Democratic Party. You see, that thing is so funny. Anyway, the point I'm making is that they then switch after this earthquake in um, in Maharashtra. They started raising funds for earthquake victims and they set up some of these foundations and in them. There were a series of them, you know, De Development Relief Fund, Indian Development Relief Fund, which then becomes SEVA in a way. And they were raising money for victims of earthquakes, victims of floods, things like that. But what we noticed at the other end was the money was being given to Hindus. Um, it was communal uh, donations. That's what we found. And we had published a report uh, about this, I think now almost 20 years ago. I can't believe it was that long ago. Uh, and I think people can find it. I've even forgotten the name of the report. It's something like funding hate or something like that, you know. Um, and a group of, you know, people in our network researched it and we had it out there. Anyway, 
I saw this, like you guys, I saw Facebook filled with, I've donated to Seva. I don't, and then there were people confused. They thought this is Seva, like the Seva group from Gujarat, you know, which is sort of like a self-help organization, like a self-help kind of thing. Do, you know, very liberal self-help. I think they thought it was that, but of course it's not. It's this other heinous history. And you know, you can't stamp out fires. You can't go to everybody's Facebook page and say, guys, why did you give, why, guys, why did And in fact, I saw quite aware people, you know, I suppose people who would, you'd think giving money. And then I saw some of my friends going out, they said, don't give to them, don't give to them, that kind of thing. But they have been able to establish themselves uh, through this sort of general framework. And to be honest with you right now, uh, I'm, I'm not sure they'll be able to give, disburse the money in a communal way. I just don't think so. I don't think people need to be all horrified and things. I think they raised a lot of money and I think they probably will give it to the Prime Minister Cares Fund, which is a little harder to communally think. This government is a wretched government. It's a communal government. Um, it's a, it's a you know, neo-fascist government, all that. But I just don't think we should get too worked up about this particular set of money. Of course, there are other places, other, look, guys, raise money for sending 22 million syringes to Cuba. Please uh, let the Cubans vaccinate themselves. Just because the diaspora is a diaspora from South Asia doesn't mean they only care about what's happening in South Asia. Please raise money to send syringes to Cuba. I mean, be a human being once in a while. Don't just be like I'm ethnic identity focused, you know? I mean, shit, you only get upset when India is hurt. What about when Brazil was going through its enormous death toll did you do anything for brazil raise money nothing I, I this this identity politics thing bothers me it bothers me a little i get it you i worry about my family and friends and and i also worry about india you know but come on i also worry about cuba and i worry about you know i worry about you guys and whatever so <laughs> Yeah. Well, Priya and I were talking about, um, and maybe this is actually a good question for us. We'll we'll leave it till the end. We have one more COVID question that's relevant, but yeah, we were we were talking about how there's certain diaspora that the only thing they've seemed to have ever cared about is like the farmers' protests, which are important, but it's just workers' movements have solidarity globally. But maybe we can get into that later a little bit about about why we should care more. But one one question that I have for you that actually came from a few people who've listened to previous episodes. Could you speak to the pandemic response efforts in uh, Corella because we people have heard you speak about them before and have you continued to notice any differences because of what it's like right now and people and myself are also curious about if there's other efforts in the global south where there are governments pushing to enact stronger public health protections and what having the communist party there means for people in their public health well look i mean the first place to look at is vietnam because all Vietnam did was they told people physical distance, wash hands, wear masks, and they barely had any COVID. They didn't even need to get to the stage of ventilators and oxygen and hospital beds and so on. Just hand wash. There was a cutest, cutest little cartoon that the government circulated of how to deal with COVID. I don't know if you saw it. Cute little song, little visuals. And a lot of people on TikTok started to take the song and they did a little dance with it, you know, in Vietnam. So smart. It went viral. And people said, wash hands, wear a mask stay so many feet away, physical distance and so on. That's almost that, that if we had just done that, you know, it, it in 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 like Italy, if people just wore masks and weren't like, I don't like masks, it's a government conspiracy. Well, then you get to the problem of oxygen and beds and, and ventilators and so on. 
so vietnam you know hats off to the vietnamese people a very poor country you know but they they really kept the whole thing in together they didn't fall apart kerala is just a state of 35 million people in the indian union of 1.4 billion it has to follow federal you know central government laws but the health minister the communist government was just like vietnam told people wash hands you know they built sinks in public places things like that um they were able to hold the infection rate down but there are problems because it's part of the indian union uh, this week the health minister kk shalja teacher gave an interview where she said if we were in delhi in power we would have nationalized the health sector we would have nationalized healthcare production you know we would have just gone for it but they can't because it's a state so they are constrained in fact uh, on the 2nd of may the election result will come out in kerala and most likely the left will be reelected first time that an incumbent has been reelected in kerala since 1980 it's a it's a really incredible feat first time in 40 years that the left will be reelected you know all the polls say that um so she gave a good statement you know that we would do this the rates of infection are going up in Kerala uh, because it's part of the Indian Union, but the mortality rate is low because the government has been really good about contact tracing, isolation, hospitalization, and so on. They have a good setup there. You know, they've created they created an app immediately. Uh, you know, in Malayalam for the Malayali people. You know, immediately they created an app. They don't play around in Kerala. You know, it's it's a communist government. It's not a communist state. That's not correct. It's still within the capitalist bourgeois structure, but the government is a communist government. And the government, you know, believes in reason, believes in science and not in banging pots and pans and all that, you know, saying Corona, Corona, Jao, Corona, Jao, 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 Corona, Jao. I mean, that's not going to make a virus go away. I don't know what the hell the government of India was thinking when they said to people, go onto the balcony and chant some chant like that, you know, Corona, go, Corona, go, Corona, go. It's just bloody nuts, man. We are an insane civilization. Yeah, that was so long ago now that I think about it. It was like the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. I also wanted to ask, there's been a lot of discussion about basically the government making people show their Aadhaar card when they get a vaccine, which is linked to everyone's biometric information. And India is currently building the largest facial recognition apparatus in the world. Can you talk a little bit about the implications of that? Just Aadhaar being required for everything, including, you know, a situation of life and death where like people need to get the vaccine in a country where there's over 350 cases a day no more than 350 you mean 350,000 cases yes of course yeah, no. <laughs> thousand uh, yeah no, no it's yeah. fine fine uh, I mean you know more about the digital surveillance business in India than I do but um, I mean on the face of it I don't think there's anything inappropriate about asking people to have identification or to monitor make sure people are not taking you know three vaccines or you know there's nothing wrong with keeping a record of things I, I don't have a problem with that it just there's a couple of issues here one is access if you don't have an Aadhaar card because you didn't bother to get it or you didn't know you had to get it or you didn't have the money to get it or whatever then you can't have a vaccine that's a problem if it prevents access that's a problem always you know if everybody has a card like for instance in the India I grew up in everybody had a ration card this entitled you to get rations in your local ration shop. You know, this is at fixed price shops. You'd get rice and dal and things like that. 
and you could uh, you just show your ration card everybody had a ration card so if you have just a means of identification i don't have a problem with that it's fine in a modern society we do have to keep records you know about all kinds of things it's okay it's fine there's nothing inappropriate for a government to have records on people after all when we're born we register that we are born and when we die we register government record keeping is useful actually you know for medical for the public health for instance they need to know you know if i uh, get a certain disease they need statistics biological statistics or simple thing you know the government needs to know that if i go to a health center and i have a cough and then there's 12 people go that day with a cough they know there's an outbreak of something you know so they need to collect data i don't have a problem with that the issue is first there's access problem second is what is the data used for and who gets to control the data that's actually the question it's not the fact of a card or anything like that who's controlling the data what's it for are they selling it to private companies are they using it to inappropriately manage populations those are real issues and that's a that's the issue that a democracy needs to deal with you know have a public conversation it's not for people you know the whole world to discuss what's india doing with the aadhar card you know what i mean um it's it's not that it's it's the question is well if you don't have an aadhar card and you have to get a vaccine that's a problem access and if they are collecting information on me what are they doing with it you know like you know we are talking through zoom they are collecting information on us they are saying there's metadata you know the three of us had a meeting together that's okay but if they are taping all our conversations and then they will be used against us that's a problem of course this doesn't matter because it's a public conversation eventually it will be out there in public so i don't care they can listen as much in fact i would want this to be played in Canadian intelligence and the CIA I would like the whole office to listen to it I want this piped into their office but I'm talking if we had a private conversation you know we didn't we wouldn't want them to be listening so the question of why are you collecting information that to me is important if you're collecting it to enhance or to improve public health I don't have a problem with that the mere fact of information gathering is to me not a problem you know i i remember reading foucault and then this foucaultian biopower i i don't buy all that you know because modern society has to collect some information on people it helps actually we develop an understanding of public health based on that scaled up level of information we develop an understanding of education based on skill like for instance in india if we learn that there are districts where children are just not going to school you know because we have statistics on this we can do something about it the officials can go and say why is people uh, let me give you a little example on this kerala um, about 6 8 years ago the government just no sorry four and a half years ago when the gov- left government communist government came to power the government found that there was a drop off in girls attendance at schools um because they collect statistics on on attendance and so on and they found that these were the girls ages at puberty roughly um and it became very clear that this had to do with menstruation that when girls were menstruating when they got their period they didn't come to school so the chief minister pinara vijayan and the cabinet discussed this they discussed the fact that there was a drop off rate and they said this is inequality between boys and girls what can we do for girls to not drop out of school for one month sometimes 3 weeks 2 weeks whatever 
So what they found was girls don't have access to sanitary napkins, sanitary pads, some kind of technology to manage their blood flow. Um, so what they did was in schools, they just provided free technologies, you know, sanitary pads, napkins, whatever, uh, tampons, so that the girls could just go into the bathroom, it's there free, put it in, and they're fine. Girls' school going rate went up. So that's based on a good statistical record. You see what I'm trying to say? I don't have that whole, my God, paranoid, the state, etc. Come on, guys, you need stats to do the good things as well. Yeah, so I wanted to um, kind of end with uh, a question about your projects, any books that you're working on that you want to share about, or if you have any book recommendations. Well, I published a book recently called Washington Bullets. I would like it if people read it because it, it summarizes a lot of what I think. Um, I did a series of interviews with my friend Frank Barat, who is a... Um, Frank is, a, is the man who organized the Russell Tribunal on Palestine, lives in Belgium. We did three sets of interviews, past, present and future, and that will come out as a book sometime this year. Uh, I'm not exactly when, I'm not sure when, and I think it's called Struggle to be Human or something. Um, that will come out. The thing I'm really most excited about, friends, is I'm working on a selected Ho Chi Minh uh, volume, which should come probably the end of the year or so. Um, and also, uh, Brinda Karat and I are doing an edited volume called Delhi's Agony, which is on the pogrom in uh, Silampur and that area of, of um, Delhi uh, in the uh, period in February last year. It was a grotesque, grotesque violence against mainly a Muslim community there. And the book will be called Delhi's Agony. It contains a report on the violence and then essays by Nasruddin Shah, T.M. Krishna, N. Ram, Ajaz Ahmed, Geeta Hariharan um, and, and, and Meera Velayudan and others. It's, it's a really good book. Wow, those Amazing. are some of my favorite people. Yeah. <laughs> like Nasruddin so Shah, wow. <laughs> Uh, Nasruddin's piece is amazing. Yeah, I'm excited to read it. Yeah, it's very exciting. And then a last thing I want to ask both of you as we wrap up is today is April 30th. So big anniversary for Vietnam. But also, what are we reflecting on or doing for May Day? If anything, in this kind of, I don't know, I'm in Canada, we're vaccine hoarding yet not rolling them out. There's not a lot to do. I appreciate you bringing up Justin Trudeau. But what what have been like either that or some of the most notable May Days in your life that you've had? The most important May Day ever is the May Day in Havana, Cuba. But this year, we'll be at Leftward Books in Delhi holding a six hour, seven hour festival, which starts at 4 p.m. Indian Standard Time, which I think in the east coast of North America, it's about 6 a.m. And um, it will begin with Pranjal from NewsClick interviewing P. Sainath. Then it goes into the farmers' leaders having a round table, including Tikayat and others. Um, they are going to be in conversation with Vikram Singh, who's the leader of the Agricultural Workers' Union. Um, then we're going to have musicians who've done some of the songs for the farmers' revolt. Um, I'm going to be interviewing Probir. Uh, Satyajit and uh, Tejal about the COVID uh, fiasco and vaccines and oxygen and so on. And then we'll have Asitasi Democracy, which is Sanjay Rajora and Rahul Ram of Indian Ocean um, and other things. And we'll be going all day uh, as we do every year. Uh, this will be, of course, virtual. You can see it at the May Day Facebook page, I think, May Day Bookshop, Bookstore, Leftward Books. And I mean, 
we love mayday we we love it so much we named our bookstore mayday bookstore i've actually been to mayday bookstore uh, a few years ago in delhi i loved it and my dream is to go back again <laughs> soon So that's that's yeah that's lovely. Yeah, um me personally I live in Oakland so there's also always incredible May Day celebrations tomorrow. So 2021 is the year of the political prisoner. So the celebration will be in honor of Mumia Abu Jamal and you know freeing him. <laughs> But yeah, just uh, I'm excited to participate. Amazing. 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 Yeah, we just have uh, the unions here are doing a virtual rally because we have a lockdown. Like we're actually not allowed to even be out. Last year we were allowed to be outside for May Day. But yeah, it's nice to hear about other people's May Days. So thank you both so much and BJ and Priya, where can people find you online? I mean, you can find well Priya, what do you do mainly? Like on Twitter? <laughs> yeah, Twitter <laughs> uh it's at Priya V Prabhakar uh, on Instagram Priya underscore Prabhakar. So is there a <laughs> yeah. second Priya Prabhakar? Is that why the V has to be there? Uh, no, it's just that that name was taken up on Twitter, so I couldn't use that as my. Like, <laughs> I see. Okay. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, yeah, I, I, but... you can find me on Twitter. I'm 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 there. Um, but please visit thetricontinental.org and read some yeah. of our materials. That's really the main thing. Yeah, and I'll link it in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you so much. Hey, these episodes take a small team. Solo episodes are hosted by me, Ashwalina Khan. American political episodes are co-hosted by Dawson Kimian. Canadian political episodes are co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande. Music and art for Hibbity Please is done by Post America and Johnny Zapras. Editing is done by Johnny Zapras. Production assistance by Raymond Khanano and Dawson Kimian and sometimes some other Habibis on our team. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at Patreon forward slash Habibti please. And you can find us on Twitter at Habibti please with a B. This takes a bit of money and your support helps us carry on the show and continue producing some unique content. So it's much appreciated. Yalla, let's grab some tea and shisha.